No, even though it may indeed happen again, um, don't be discouraged by the fact that we are now, now ready for the second verse <laughs> of Genesis. This is session five, and we're now looking at the second verse. Don't be discouraged by that. We do have a session coming up where I deal with four verses. Count them. Four. The three, four, five. No. Three verses. Three verses, yeah. Someone else keeps the books in our family. In our last session, lo, long time ago, we addressed the first of two so-called elephants in the room, the authorship of Genesis and the rest of the Pentateuch. It's now time to address the second elephant in the room. During our wilderness years back in the mid-90s, Linda and I studied together Paul's epistle to the Romans, Using as our primary extra-biblical resource Donald Gray Barnhouse's classic, and here's the full title, Romans, Exposition of Bible Doctrines, Taking the Epistle to the Romans as a Point of Departure. It's a classic work. It was during this study that we were first introduced to the topic I begin with today, as we consider Genesis 1, verse 2. Here is what Barnhouse wrote and said during his regular radio broadcast in the 1940s and early 50s. So all of this is Barnhouse. I'll tell you when I'm not quoting Barnhouse. Quote, In the beginning God created the, and in parentheses he put, first heaven and the first earth, Genesis 1.1. It was perfect and mirrored the perfect creation which inhabited it. Then sin entered and God blasted the universe. The earth was without form and void. Or as it could be more correctly, as it would be more correctly translated, quote, the world became a wreck and a ruin. The RSV correctly translates Isaiah 45.18 to say, He created it not a chaos. How long the world existed in that wrecked can get condition we do not know. There are evidences from geology that it may have been for several million years. Continents rose and fell. Gr glaciers crept down toward the equator and receded again, leaving the telltale scars of their passage written deep in the skin of the earth. Giant beasts roamed the earth, and the descendants of the beings that followed Lucifer in his fall left their trail across the crust of earth. Then, suddenly, God brought light into the dark of that sinister creation and in a few brief days brought a covering of perfection to his creation. Like snow that covers a garbage dump and makes all things clean for a moment, so Adam's world was beautiful for the moments of his walk with God. Then, with the rebellion of man came the words of condemning judgment. Cursed be the gr ground for thy sake, thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. Genesis 3, 17 and 18. This is the earth on which we live. The scars of the past are beneath our feet, and the death of judgment is all around us. That was Donald Gray Barnhouse. 
well-respected scholar. Now, at the time, I had never heard of this so-called two or three earths uh, position, also referred to as the gap theory. That's kind of the official nomenclature for it, gap theory, in, 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 suggesting there's a gap between verse 1 and verse 2. That Barnhouse so casually stated as gospel truth. The first time I read this, my response was not surprisingly, where did this come from? What in the world are you talking about? I had never heard of that. But then I don't get out very much. I ran into it again while doing my research for our previous study, Last Things. Like Barnhouse, Clarence Larkin in his well-known series of charts published in 1919 and Buell Liming in 1970, posit three Earths. The original Earth of Genesis 1-1, the chaotic Earth before or between or in verse 2, followed by the restored earth of 1, verses, verse 3 and following. Now at this point I need to revert to a bit of counsel I mentioned at the beginning of the previous class on last things. While I will propound, by God's grace, a convincing specific position regarding this, I do have a position to take on it, there are well-regarded biblical scholars that subscribe to different positions. Barnhouse is no slouch. He's not someone you just write off. Indeed, some of those different positions, for example, as voiced by Barnhouse, include some attractive aspects that make them at least worth consideration. Ultimately, we must decide upon just one. Can't have both. But that does not mean that those holding to other interpretations are deserving of our scorn. Worthy arguments can be made for most of them. Much of it buried in the Hebrew text. Much of it's based on the Hebrew. Thus, I will not quarrel with anyone choosing an alternate interpretation. But, creation was a process. One of the things I've learned by this, this study, it's always nice when the teacher learns something from a study. Uh, it, I'm, it, it's, it's so very clear, especially in chapters 1 and 2, that creation was a process. God did one thing, and then he did something more, and then he did something more. It didn't just go boom, and it was all done. Chapter 1 alone of Genesis makes this clear. In the beginning, the very very beginning moments of God's creating, the earth looked nothing like it does today. Nothing. But was this, as Barnhouse and others claim, a first pristine earth that would eventually be replaced or reformed as a second or third earth? Or was it simply the natal shape of the earth before it was, as part of the process of creation, refined? That's what it looked like. First time out, that's what it looked like. When we read of shapeless and formless, that's it. 
Now, actually, that's not accurate. But how, if I were to be accurate, that picture would be black on black. You don't see things unless there's a little bit of light. And by the way, in case anybody's wondering, the light in that is not the Big Bang. The light in that represents God's power, God's voice. Barnhouse does not shy away from the temptation to use this interpretation to resolve those nagging conflicts that arise between old earth and new earth proponents. Rock strata, scientifically dated to an age multiple millions of years into the past. Erosion claimed to have required billions of years to occur. Giant dinosaurs roaming the earth before even the first man. No problem. All this occurred, according to Barnhouse and others, during the period of the second chaotic and assumed sinful earth. That's when it all happened. As he says, quote, how long the world existed in that wrecked condition, we do not know. There are evidences from geology that it may have been for several million years. End quote. David Guzik rebuts this with one simple biblical fact. Quote, Whatever merit the gap theory may have, it cannot explain the extinction and fossilization of ancient animals. The Bible says plainly, death came by Adam. Romans 5.12 And since fossils are the result of death, they could not have happened before Adam's time. Duh. I like David Guzik. He, he, he's kin to me, I'm meaning he didn't go to seminary. He didn't get spoiled by going to seminary. Okay, never mind. Don't, uh, uh, Zeb, you can scratch that out. <laughs> <laughs> I better cough so he recognizes the pattern. Okay. <laughs> now let's read our text. Genesis 1, verses 1 to 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. The original Hebrew begins verse 2 with and, which is removed by the ESV. New, <clears throat> since I was up. The original Hebrew begins verse 2 with and, which is removed by the ESV, New King James, and NASB 95, but not the original NASB. The NIVs replace and with now, which works just fine. Here's Leupold's paraphrase. And now, as far as the earth was concerned, it was waste and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering upon the face of the waters. The point being that in the original text, 
That didn't do much good, did it? I think they're walking away. Slap them upside the head, Isla. The point being that in the original text, verse 2 does not speak of a different earth, but continues to flesh out the description of the same earth in verse 1. The conjunction and makes this clear. We're still talking about the same thing. Again, creation was a process. It was a jigsaw puzzle put together a piece at a time, over time, until all of it was very good. Verse 31. In precisely the same way, in verse 1, God creates the heavens. But not until later, piece by piece, does he add the moon and sun. (coughs) Lights in the expanse of the heavens, in verse 14. As well as the stars, verse 16. So he made the heavens, and then later he puts things into the heavens. He does the same thing with the earth. He makes the earth, but then he works on it. And then he starts putting things on it. Who? Why? For us. For man. What really lights the fire of the proponents of the gap theory are the next two words that describe this newly formed earth. Formless and void. They take this to mean that the original earth, the pristine earth, has now been laid waste by some catastrophe. And there's, there's evidence for this in the text. The, the text, the original Hebrew, can be interpreted. I've done you the favor of not telling you all about this because it's really boring uh, and confusing. But there's some, you know, they, they have some grounds for this if, if you look at just the Hebrew. So they typically interpret this to mean by sin and corruption, the world was laid waste through the fallen angel Satan. That is, they interpret this verse as saying, the earth became formless and void. That is, the initial pristine earth became formless and void. They would see that picture as the second earth, not the first. But the Hebrew tohu, without form, emptiness, waste, that's what it means, can also mean not yet put into shape. Ah. The second part, wabahu and void, can mean to be empty, emptiness, without inhabitants of any kind. So used together, these express a picture of an unformed and unshaped mass and point the reader toward the conclusion that this newly created world will undergo further changes. First, it must be shaped and formed into definite molds. Second, it must be peopled with all kinds of inhabitants and beings. Speaking against the gap theory, the venerable Kyle and Delish commentary reads verse 2 as, And the earth was, and then they insert in parentheses, not became, was waste and void. 
That's how God made it, initially. Think of it this way. Every exquisite pot begins as a shapeless, formless lump of clay. What it will eventually become lies not within the clay itself, but in the hands of its maker. As a potter will take in hand a large ball of amorphous clay and slap it onto the wheel to begin the process, just so the Lord God spoke into existence a formless lump of earth, devoid of any character or personality, and most certainly devoid of any beauty. And he slapped it down in its place, in the nothingness that would soon be a universe of planets and stars. Then, and only then, did he begin the process of shaping it into something we might eventually recognize. So, the text tells us we must kind of wipe from our mind that Sunday school image we have of God creating, boom, the Garden of Eden. And it was beautiful. He hasn't done that yet. That wasn't the first part of the process. It was the first process. The first part was a little ugly. Now, I'll not take time in class to itemize all the various evangelical interpretations and theories of the, for the creation epic, specifically how it compares to so-called scientific theories such as evolution, etc., if you're interested in this, I've included a link in this session's handout for an excellent but succinct summary of the various interpretations. And for those of you who don't use the internet, Carolyn, <laughs> I printed out three copies. If you're interested, it, I mean, if you're not interested, don't do it. But there's three printed copies. The rest, but it's, it's an easy link and it's a, not a, a long article and it's interesting. It breaks it all down into various positions. What did this shapeless mass look like? Well, I've already told you. What was its composition? We're tempted to imagine in our mind the most desolate, lifeless expanse of desert waste. And that is indeed how the same word is used later in Deuteronomy. Let's look there. Deuteronomy 32 and keep your finger here. We will be returning in a, in a moment. Deuteronomy 32. And let's read verses 9 to 10. So there's a picture of a desert waste. That's, it's the same word. Same word we have here in Genesis. But the rest of verse 2 dissuades us from that conclusion, that it was a desert. The verse continues, And darkness was over the surface of the deep. Only later in the narrative, verse 9, is dry land created. Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. 
Thus, what we have in verse 2 is a shapeless earth with surging, surging water covering its entire surface. Whether there is land lying beneath the waves or not, we really can't say for certain. Moses paints a picture that any Israelite would recognize. The deep, or abyss, as it's translated elsewhere, is the Hebrew tehom, and often refers to the primal ocean, or the deep, even the underworld, the realm of the dead. Rendering the ocean depths representing a fearful place to Israel. Time and again in God's word, you'll read the deep and, and the seas as a bad place. We don't like that place. On top of that, this deep is wreathed in utter blackness. There is no light yet created to pierce its mysteries. The word to home is from the root hum, which means to resound, thus revealing that this is no placid pond, but endless, surging, even raging primeval waters, and all in utter darkness. A fearful place indeed. Have you ever noticed the utter, utter silence in your house when the power goes out? We may think our home is quiet. We live out in the country and we think it's quiet all the time. It sounds quiet to us, except when they're blasting in the quarry nearby. But there are always ambient sounds that we've come to ignore. The hum of the refrigerator or freezer, the purr of the desktop computer, even the barely audible buzz of fluorescent lights. Suddenly, all those are gone, and the silence is deafening. It really is remarkable. I've been out in the desert at night when it's utterly silent. And there's a strange phenomenon. No sounds, period. And that silence creates a roaring in your ears, a roaring in your head. It's deafening. Very strange. In the same way, we're almost continually surrounded by light from one source or another. Even when we call what we call dark is rarely utterly black. And there was light. <laughs> I am God. <laughs> Thank you. Preach on. There's invariably some ambient light from somewhere. But again, I've been out in the middle of the desert on a cloud-covered night with no artificial light from city or houses, no moon or stars in the skies, and I literally cannot see my hand in front of my face. Utter blackness. That's the state of the earth at this point of creation. That's what the earth looked like. Utter blackness. The verse continues, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. At this point in the creation process, we have a shapeless, that is, in transition, earth dark with its surface consisted solely of roiling waters. 
What movie does that remind you of? The whole surface of the planet, roiling waters. There's a movie that does that. Churning. Waves, big waves. Active. Active. And now a new element is introduced into the narrative. The Spirit of God. As in the Greek, which is pneuma, the Hebrew for spirit, ruach, can be proper or no. It can be small s or capital S. It can also be rendered wind, breeze, or breath. Some do like to paint this picture in verse 2 as a wind blowing over the waters. Follows. I mean, if it's moving, if there's big waves, there's a wind. Thus, one interpretation of this is of a wind associated with the churning waters. In other words, an element of the creation itself, water and wind. Others, especially some older translations, choose different verbs to describe what this wind or spirit is doing. For example, Young's literal translation has the Spirit of God fluttering on the face of the waters. I like that. Fluttering. He's fluttering say. <laughs> Others prefer translating rakhaf, brooding, rather than the more common hovering or moving, as in most of our versions, which the Hebrew seems to require. The, the message. Uh, who wrote the message? Who wrote the paraphrase? Of the, the, I, I, I should have I written it down. I've got it in my library. No, it's not Phillips. Phillips is different. This is more recent. Anyway, he loves adjectives. Earth was a soup of nothingness, a bottomless emptiness, an inky blackness. God's spirit brooded like a bird above the watery abyss. Whew. Certainly colorful, but a mother broods over her eggs, not her young. The earth in this moment is young, but it's not waiting to be hatched. The text signifies an active, vibrant, moving, a protective, hovering, as we see back in the Deuteronomy passage. Let's go back there. Verse 11 in chapter 32. Like an eagle, it stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on. See the difference? That eagle is not brooding, but he's hovering, he's protecting. He's spreading his wings and hovering. So it's clear that whatever is moving over the waters is there in more than just an elemental role. It's something more than just wind. But it's actively playing a role in the creative process itself. Well, there's that light that came on, put a reflection on the light on this clock. I can't see it. Is it wind or spirit? If spirit, is it small s or capital S? In Deuteronomy 32.11, it is Yahweh hovering over his people like an eagle. It's God. Here it is the Holy Spirit, third member of the Godhead, hovering over the earliest moments of creation. But what is his role? And here we have one of those special moments I so enjoy. 
This gets good. Where we discover the profound richness lying beneath the surface. You don't really get this from just reading the text, the surface. You need to dig down. So stay with me here. This is good stuff. If we say that the Spirit is here depicted in an active, creative role, are we forcing the text to say something it isn't? Fair enough. Does it make sense for the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, to be involved in creation? Yes, indeed. And we see it paralleled in the account of the creation of the tabernacle, where he, the Spirit, was a necessary component. Turn, please, to Exodus. Exodus 31. Exodus 31, verses 1 to 5. Now. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled with him the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for works of gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. Here was a talented artisan, artisan, but for something as, as important as the first temple to Yahweh on earth, he required the Spirit of God to play a role. The text says, I have filled him with the Spirit of God. That was necessary. Sailhammer agrees, as God did his work of creation by means of the Spirit of God, so Israel was to do their work by means of the Spirit of God. And the psalmist states it explicitly. Look at Psalm 33, please. This passage uses the same, same word for spirit or breath, ruach. Psalm 33 Verses 6 to 9. By the word of Yahweh the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear Yahweh. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was. He commanded, and it stood. So there it says, and by the breath of his mouth, same word. And here's the delightful insight that adds depth and texture to the simple. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. That's pretty neat the way it is. But when we really chew on it a little bit, here's what Leupold has to say. This hovering was not a single and instantaneous act. It rather describes a continued process. 
from all other activities that are elsewhere ascribed to the Holy Spirit, we conclude that his work in this case must have been anticipatory of the creative work that followed, a kind of impregnation with divine potentialities. Now, that's a handful of big words. A kind of impregnation, you get that, with divine potentialities. The germs of all that is created were placed into dead matter by him. His was the preparatory work for leading over from the inorganic to the organic. Do you get that? God creates... Now, you know, we're, we're stretching this out. God's doing it in a, in a matter of days. But we're dissecting it so we understand what he's doing and how he's doing it and what it looks like, what he's doing. He creates the earth in an initial form. Not a first earth, not a separate earth, just the earth. And he creates it in this shapeless, watery, black form. God the Spirit, it's still God at work, but God the Spirit, you know, at the very end, what well, one thing we learned in our previous study, it's all about Christ. It's all about Christ. He is the one on the throne. That song we sang last this morning had it all. He is the one we, the world will bow before. He is Lord. He is the judge. And in the very beginning, the whole triunity of God, the whole Godhead is at work. Colossians, Romans, Hebrews tell us Christ created the world. The Son created the world. So he's active in this. And here we have the Spirit. And the Spirit comes in hovering over this brand new earth and brings it life. He's the part of God who, what was the word? Impregnated. Impregnated with potentialities, with divine potentialities. The venerable Kyle and Delish agree in fact, surely it was their commentary that inspired commentary that inspired Leupold in some of his remarks. Here's Kyle and Delish. In such a way as this, the Spirit of God moved upon the deep, which had received at its creation the germs of all life, to fill them with vital energy by his breath of life. Now, that's a slightly different picture than how Leupold put it. Leupold put it that that the the spirit brought what was necessary for life. How Kyle and Delish put it is that they brought, God made the earth with the potentiality for life, but the Spirit awakened it, awakened that life. The three statements in our verse are parallel. All three describe the condition of the earth immediately after the creation of the universe. This is still Kyle and Delish. This suffices to prove that the 
theosophic speculation. Theosophic just means knowing all divine wisdom. Your teacher is theosophic. He knows all divine wisdom. Just joking. This suffices to prove that the theosophic speculation of those who, quote, make a gap between the first two verses and fill it with a wild horde of evil spirits and their demonical works is an arbitrary interpolation or insertion, alteration. Are we, are we pushing this too far? Are we giving too much credit to the Spirit of God? And is it even the Spirit of God? Maybe it's a wind. I don't think so, for it happens again in just the same manner in chapter 2 of Genesis. Genesis 2, verse 7, Then Yahweh God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And so the man became a living being. Adam did not become a living being until the Spirit of God went into him. The breath of God went into him. He was just a shapeless mass. Not until he had the breath of the Spirit, then he became alive. By this interpretation, we see the Spirit of God literally breathing life into the dark, formless, and void earth. And as the narrative proceeds, even all the way to the end in Revelation, we see the Spirit active and vital on and in the earth. few minutes left. Any thoughts? Any questions? Man was not spoken, though. Man was born. That's right. That's something else I learned in this study. It's interesting. We haven't got there yet, but it's interesting. Some things were spoken into existence, but not everything. Not the animals, not man. They were formed. What else? The author that you quoted at the beginning, if you think of Barnstormer, I know that was Barnhouse. <laughs> are, we, are, we, are we acknowledging the possibility of what he said that the earth could be millions plus years old? Or is that just his theory? What, what, we, what was the purpose of bringing that part of it up? Well, I was reading, I was quoting him on what he was saying about the gap theory. Okay. And part of that is what was accomplished during that gap. That's why I brought it up. Uh, we will be discussing in session seven, this, sometime next year, um, uh, my thoughts on the age of the earth. We, we will be covering that in greater depth. Exegesis and eisegesis. Barnhouse is reading into Scripture 
rather than having scripture tell him what it actually says there. That may be the, the case, but it's not entirely the case. Uh, I do not claim to be an expert on the ancient languages of, of God's Word. I just read what others say and I dig into the, into the words myself, um, their meaning, their structure. Uh, but I'm, I don't know the languages like our, our pastors do. <clears throat> but I read enough about this to learn that you can make the case if you, if you disregard other portions of God's Word that speak against this. It's like I said in our last class, or maybe the first class, I don't know, I get mixed up. Uh, we're going to take the pedestrian attack of going by what God says. What, uh, it was about what Jesus said about who wrote this. Jesus said Moses wrote it. So I think we'll go with Jesus <clears throat> rather than five different schools of thought. Um, and it's kind of the same thing here. If you just look at those two verses, verse 1 and verse 2 in the Hebrew, the, the tenses and, and the way they're structured, you can kind of come to the conclusion that the world became null and void. But when you add to that how those words are used elsewhere, what God's Word says about the earth and all that kind of stuff, you come to a different conclusion. And that's why I come down where I do in that God made one earth. It just wasn't finished at the beginning. It, he had more work to do. He did it in a pretty short period of time. But it took steps. So yeah, it's we can say that about Barnhouse, but it's it's a little more than that. He 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 and others. I mean, he's not alone. He was just he just. I have his his commentary, and I I I said, oh, good, that's great. Let's quote this. Um, there are others who claim, but most modern scholars do not go with the gap theory. They say. No, one earth. Because we don't know the exact timing of when it fell, do we? No. We we do know that it was early on, but when and and was that the cause of this? Or we don't know. Uh, no, we kind of concluded in the previous study that Satan fell and he but after he fell. In Job, we see that even after he fell, he had access to the throne of God. So he just he just came down to earth. But it wasn't Satan's sin that brought sin into the world. No, it was Adam and Eve's sin. I guess that well, we we can argue semantics on that, can't we? I mean, it was Satan working in them. In the Garden of Eden. Yeah. Yes. All right, thank you. It was that woman. <laughs> didn't get good instruction from her husband. Yes. <laughs> Father, your word is rich and deep. 
and we are grateful for your Spirit in helping us understand it. We give you the glory for whatever we have learned today and will learn in the coming weeks and months. In Jesus' name, amen. You think it's going to be years? Why would you think that? Thank you for preparation.